Hello and welcome to another episode of the Construction Corner Podcast. I'm Dylan. I'm your host, uh, joined this week by Matt and Alex. And we're actually going to, I'm going to roll right to Matt because <laughs> I don't have his bio in front of me this week. And uh, I'll let you take it from here, Matt. Thanks, Dylan. So yeah, guys, today we have with us uh, Alex Kraft. Alex is a first-time entrepreneur and founder of Heave.co. He started Heave uh, based on his 16 years of experience working for a heavy equipment dealer. He worked in pretty much every area of the dealership from equipment sales to rentals to parts and service. From his early days, he's, he's always had a love for the industry, the blue collar nature of the people that drive it, which wink, wink is why he fits in good here. And uh, always been a big fan of the tangible results that companies can provide to our economy. And he's excited to be a part of its evolution. And uh, Alex, we're excited to have you, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, it's exciting to be on here and look forward to chatting over the next 60 minutes or so. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess without wasting any time, let's just jump right in, Alex. Why don't you give us a, a kind of a 30,000 foot view of, of you? Where'd you get your start sure. in the industry and where'd you get to? Yeah, when, I, when we had first talked, Matt, uh, you, you had kind of mentioned to me that and I'd listened to a few of your episodes that you hadn't had anyone on uh, from like the equipment supplier side. Uh, so that's true. one of the, one of the reasons why I thought it'd be kind of cool to, to get into this. And so, so I started out of, out of college uh, without knowing much about the industry selling equipment. So got a job. The, the allure was not necessarily the industry at the time. It was the ability to live in Miami at uh, the age of 23. <laughs> so, hey, that, that works. Uh, South Beach was uh, pretty cool uh, to live uh, back in 2004 through 2007. So that was, that was more of the, the start was the location. And, uh, and then I did fall in love with the industry. Just, you know, the people that you meet, um, you know, in, in the lead up, you had mentioned tangible, like, most of my friends, uh, I, I'm from the Philadelphia area, so I'm a Northeastern guy. A lot of my friends lived in, in Manhattan, you know, different financial firms. And, and one of the things that kind of was like frustrating, I would ask them like, well, what do you do? And they would give me a title and I'm like, okay, well, what does that do? <laughs> like, 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 what do you do when you get there at nine in the morning? And it's just like, I couldn't understand it. So uh, you know, it was cool to like meet these guys who were third generation or second generation and you just know what they did. Like, hey, we pave, we, you know, do infrastructure, you know, we start here and it ends with this completed job. And it's just, there were real people. Um, and so that's, you know, that was my start. And I really enjoyed, you know, the people part of the business. So, well, go ahead, Dylan. Well, I can imagine in 04 to 07 in Miami, just the boom that was happening during that time, right? Like your real estate was probably absolutely insane. So being in like the rental equipment business, you had, you were probably busting your butt for those three years. Uh, it was crazy. It was stupid. And it wouldn't even just say Miami, I would say Florida in general. And uh, one of the cool things, I was always able to have good uh, perspective because uh, we also owned the Volvo dealership in Eastern Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York City. And so I was able to see how the Florida market compared to other areas, specifically up there. And like even, yeah, we, you mentioned the, the really awesome times. And then it went off of a cliff. But even when that recession hit in 07 and really through like 2011, you would look at the market numbers for Florida compared to like the Northeast. And relatively, if you were if you were selling equipment, you'd still want to be in Florida in the in the recession, just because uh, you know, the market still, you know, for that job was you could make a good living, just wasn't what it used to be. Yeah, I think uh, nothing was what it used to be in in those times uh, across the country. But you know, Florida's kind of got that buffer, I think, always because it's a it's a vacation destination still it's it's a retirement destination so that uh, probably was a pretty good place to insulate yourself definitely and there's still there's a lot of land to be developed like growing up in the northeast like everything is 
has already been built, right? And you, you drive around Florida and everything, you go inland and there's still plenty of, of land. Um, so, and one of the things that I really enjoy about your guys' podcast is you talk a lot, have a lot of guests on about like self-improvement. And one of the crazy things is that in that 2004, 2007 period of time is that you didn't have to be good at it. Like you were, you were getting orders, you were selling equipment, you were renting equipment and you, you just had to have a pulse. Maybe you just call somebody back. <laughs> so, so how did you learn the industry though? So, I mean, you had to have more than a pulse to be successful. I, I got to imagine since you're still doing it now, uh, however many sure. years later. So did you, I mean, you literally walked in on day one and didn't know anything about construction, anything about equipment. Nope. No, just learn the equipment. Um, I've always been curious and I always tried to, like I've always tried to find like somebody who really knows what they're doing and try to watch what they do. Uh, and so uh, that's, you know, just learning on your own. You know, that's, that's why I hang out with Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, for, in sales, I mean, it doesn't matter what industry you're in. That's one of the, you know, it, it's the, the qualities are the same. It, you know, it's, it's uh, building reports, being responsive. It's, uh, you know, not pitching, you know, it's, it's listening. So, you know, that's some of the things that I picked up on from the successful guys that were around. Yeah, for sure. It's like sales and anything, like you said, it's no like trust, right? You, you got to build that, whether you're selling widgets or equipment or construction projects or software. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, and then, and two, the other thing with, like, with this industry in particular, customers are so knowledgeable about the equipment. And yeah, even back then, you know, because, I mean, if you think about it, those are the guys who are running the equipment. So like I, even as a salesperson, I might not be in the cab of a machine, that particular machine for three months. These guys are running it every day. And so it really like success to me from an early start from the industry was like just supporting, you know, it, it wasn't, I initially thought I'd have to be able to be like, all right, well, this three yard loader has a fuel uh, capacity of X. Like, no, it <laughs> doesn't matter to customers. They just... You know, it's like what we've talked about. It's responsiveness, it's trust, it's support. That's what leads people to be successful. It's not, you don't have to be this like walking spec sheet. You probably don't get a lot of guys walking in, not having any friggin' clue what they're there to buy. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, and too, like uh, salespeople in this profession don't like go on a job site and say, okay, so you're going to move a million yards of dirt. So I would recommend that that would take 16 40 ton trucks and you're going to, you're going to need 600,000 pounds. You know, you have an estimating team, you know, the customers know like, Hey, we need, we're going to do this job. It's going to take us nine months. We're going to need this spread of equipment, you know? And so that's what I think makes it unique for somebody who maybe like me and me who didn't really know that much to, to be able to kind of survive. Which, I mean, that's a pretty unique position, right? For like a lot of the things that we do in construction, you know, you have a lot of clients that maybe don't understand uh, some nuances about like flooring finishes or, you know, maybe they know that they want carpet or hardwood. They don't know anything in between. So for like the equipment side of things and having the, really the customers <clears throat> place in an order for the most part in what it is that you're doing, um, which as a young guy, so long as you can be pretty humble, I'm sure that was a great opportunity uh, to do it. But what types of equipment were you um, renting, selling, all sure. that kind of stuff? So we were a Volvo dealer. So it was all heavy earth moving. So loaders, excavators, articulated haulers, you know, off-road trucks were probably the, the product that Volvo is most known for. Um, and after, when I was in management, we took on the Takahuchi line. So we really got into the compact equipment, like the mini excavators and the uh, track skid loaders. And it's a great product. And, uh, but I never sold Takahuchi. Uh, I was just in management at that time. But it was mostly earth moving. Did you have any involvement in the, the finance side of, of this? In terms of? Well, it always just, you know, I'm, I've been in the construction industry for a long time, mm -hmm. um, you know, 20, 25 years. 
but it always blows my mind when I meet new earth workers, just the sheer magnitude of cost they have to go through to, to own this stuff. Right. Sure. It's not like, like me going and buying a new F two fifty. you know, it's, yep. it's hundreds and hundreds of, if not millions of dollars. So it, I don't know. I'm just always kind of been curious how you go about find how the average guy would go and say, I want to start an earthworking company. Now I got to get a shit ton of equipment. That's going to cost me whatever. Absolutely. So, you know, we would finance a ton of equipment. Uh, so financing was integral in selling, you know, but for some of those guys, like you mentioned, a lot of the small stuff is bought with cash uh, or they have their own lender. Uh, leasing became really popular like the, from the last six or seven years till now for that reason. Because um, a lot of customers really uh, became very uh, sophisticated and very smart with how they would do jobs like leasing you know, why, to your point, why uh, uh, an off-road truck, like a Volvo 40-ton truck would run over 500 grand. Uh, and the same, one of the, there's, this industry is full of sayings, right? And, but they're, they're mainly true, right? So somebody would say, well, you never buy one truck, you buy two trucks, four trucks. So why commit a million in capital uh, to buy two trucks when I have a two-year job and I, I only, and I can lease this equipment and I only have to pay 11 grand a month per truck. Makes a lot of sense. And so leasing like took off uh, five, six years ago uh, for that reason. And, and you see like a lot of customers, they do, they employ uh, a strategy with like three. So we'll lease X amount, we'll rent X amount and we'll own X amount. Sure. And you know, it makes a lot of sense. Whereas I think like the old school contractors, like 20 years ago, it's like, no, we buy everything. Yeah. Buy it and hold it for 40 years. And right. Cause it's an asset. Yes. Know? And as long as you have a good mechanic, you know, a good maintenance department, I guess you can do that. Um, I've also seen a lot of dudes who, you know, they'll show up on a job site with these just old dogs on a trailer. And it's <laughs> like, man, what, what are you doing? You know? <laughs> Absolutely. So a lot of things have changed. It's pretty, it's, it's neat to watch, you know, like I said, we become smarter. How has supply chain affected that in um, kind of guys, you know, obviously the financial side and leasing versus renting, but from the like availability of, you know, a job comes up and like, you don't own it. So how do you go about that? And has there been some, you know, problems on that side of the fence? So it's interesting, like I'm, I'm in a different capacity now with the supply chain than what I used to be, but um, take away the term supply chain, inventory was always a big challenge. Uh, so when I was with the dealership, uh, I had one of my responsibilities was I had to manage our credit facility. So we would have to stock inventory, we had a $140 million line. And so we were, I was always having to look at all right, uh, we're selling 40 machines this month. We have, we're taking in 50 machines this month and you know how all those pieces fit. Uh, and what was happening towards the end of my tenure there was lead times would be further and further out. And so like if we ordered something on day, on day one, it would be six months before we saw it from the factory. And so that was always one of the biggest challenges because you're never right with inventory. You either have too much uh, or you have too little and you're missing out on business. And so the supply chain nightmare that exists today, you know, I'm a little bit removed from, but I do get to see kind of how things are from where we sit with Heave. Uh, that's interesting. Well, that's a, that's a great segue. So why don't you take us into what, what Heave is and, and how you started it and, and what you're doing sure. there. So, um, so we, I worked for the Volvo dealer for, long time, 16 years, 17 years. And uh, we sold the company to another Volvo dealer that's up in your neck of the woods. Um, and so I, I was always kind of surprised, shocked, uh, you know, whatever other uh, synonym you want to use, where to, if, you, if you're a customer and you want to rent or buy a machine, even in 2020, you have to call a salesman in order to do it. And it blew me away because like I, I would meet with a customer 
And, you know, they would order Uber Eats for lunch and then like, all right, so I got, I got to get a hundred thousand pound excavator. Who do I call? <laughs> like what, how does this make any sense? Um, and so I started kind of playing around with the idea of, you know, looking at the other industries, you know, there's some similarities between like Expedia or Lending Tree or, you know, fill in the blank where a customer can go to heave.co. And, and answer a couple questions really easily on a phone. Hey, I want to rent uh, a Cat 938 size machine, or I want to buy uh, a Volvo EC480 excavator between 1,000 and 2,000 hours. And then they're done. It gets posted on our site, but then any sales rep who's within that area gets an immediate alert and says, hey, Matt, uh, at such and such, uh, once a quote on a, a one to 2000 hour Volvo EC480, click here to quote and they can do it. You get multiple quotes and you can decide who you want to talk to. So how do you, how, how do you get your sales reps? I mean, is there a, and you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but is it subscription based for them or does it, if you just it pull is. the market? It, it is. So, um, so the first thing uh, in terms of how do we get sales reps is uh, you can talk about, hey, what I just walked you through. And they're like, okay, that's cool in concept, but they don't care unless they see on our site that there's six open deals in their area. Then sure. you have their attention, <laughs> which makes sense. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we sell subscriptions to salesmen. Uh, but we also will sell enterprise. So a dealer can come in and say, Hey, I want all 20 of my sales reps on here. And then it's a, it's a reduced rate. Okay. But, you know, I also like, we approached it. I, I kind of took you through the, the path of a customer, right? Because it, it's hard if you're a customer and you're not one of the big guys, you know, and you don't frequently buy or rent equipment, it's hard to, to track down somebody, you know, cause you don't, I don't, yeah, I met with one of my friends here locally. He's like, I've had 12 different Sunbelt reps in the last 14 months, you know, or, uh, you know, I don't know who the John Deere salesman is. And, and so, but for the salesman side, uh, our value is that the only way for a salesman to like prospect and gain new business is just cold calling in person. <laughs> And we all kind of know how effective that is. And, and customers don't really like it because it has no value. And so you're as a salesperson, because I've been in those shoes before, it's like everyone tells me it's a relationship business, but if I don't have the relationships, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> and so we, that's our customer. Our customer is really the salesperson. And so they're the ones who pay for the service. And so that's who we've designed it for. And, you know, that's why it's taken off because it makes sense. And they're like, all right, I can quote 10 deals, you know, from my phone and still go about my day. I think it's an awesome concept. Um, and I think I told you when we talked last um, end of last year, we were looking for a, a skits, a track loader um, and shit, man. I mean, it was, it was like pulling teeth trying to find anyone that, that could sell me one that had one or could even order it. And, you know, you talk to one guy and it's like, yeah, we sell Bobcats and that's it. It's like, okay. And you talk to another guy, we do Kubotas and that's it. And, you know, I'm looking at your website here and scrolling down, you've got, you know, something short of 5,000 different track loaders that I, I could click right. and select and you know, <laughs> theoretically have, have numbers on pretty quickly. And, but it was, it, it was it's, a nightmare. It's insane. And in people, and sometimes you sit back and you're like, so do you want to sell anything? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, do you, like, and it's weird. It's like creeps into the minds of people who, who have done it. And we're like, like, if you, sometimes if you talk to a salesman, they're like giving you four reasons why they can't do a deal with you. And you're just like, whoa, what are we doing here? And so, yeah, we try to remove all of that. And so, we have, you know, a lot of positive use cases where like, as we're sitting here talking, like somebody came in, placed a request for a Bobcat T64 and they had six quotes immediately. And 
And so it, it's, and I'll, I want to actually mention one thing as to how that happens. So it is all comes about like with the development of our product because uh, you just have to pay attention to how people use it and, and what the experience is. So like one of the cool things that I've noticed in the last year is that 80% of the customer requests happen off hours. So they happen either before 6 a.m., after 6 p.m., or on weekends. And it makes sense when you think about it. It's like, well, hey, customers are working during the day, you know? And, yeah. and like what you said, it's usually a miserable experience. So they're like, all right, I'll just put this off. <laughs> and so we were noticing that. And it's like, hey, they were getting quotes. But if a customer comes on our website on a Saturday, and then like Tuesday morning, they get a quote, is that, that's not very effective. And so what we did was we built the ability to where we can take a dealer's inventory and load it in our database and we call it auto quote or matching. And so now we have this big database of available equipment. It kind of has like an open table feel. Like you can go view like open reservations or whatever. So now when that customer who went on our site and asked for a Bobcat T64 uh, under a thousand hours, our database searched immediately for all of those uh, machines that have less than a thousand hours in that size class in that area and immediately quoted that customer six machines. <laughs> and every one of those salesmen, they haven't quoted the deal. They just got a text message that said, hey, uh, such and such with this phone number and this deal, we've quoted them your cat 299 or whatever. Follow up with them. That that's awesome, man. I'm actually, I was just writing a note. I'm going to call the guy that I, because we finally did find a good dealer. He's, he's a couple hours away, delivered it right to my damn house. So nice. he's, he's a good player in the market, but I'm going to call him after and, and give him your information. Cause you know, we ended up getting what I think we wanted, but it was just painful. It took forever. You know, the supply chain is one thing, but it, it took forever before we could even place an order with someone. So to cut that part out, I think is, is a huge, huge benefit. I appreciate it. It's, uh, makes sense. You know, it, it's, uh, you know, it's funny, like when you get like pushback in the early days, it's like, so why wouldn't you want to participate? You want it to be hard for customers. Like, and that's, uh, but I think that was why my experience was valuable. Like Volvo is not the number one player in the market. So I was always like from a challenger position, having to try to like, figure something different out to, in order for us to, to gain business, you know? Yeah. Volvo's the wrong kind of yellow <laughs> for a lot of guys. <laughs> it's the right kind in Europe. That's what we'd always hear. But, <laughs> uh, but no, this is, I mean, to have the ability to, to see inventory in and of itself is, is a big deal, you know, cause like Matt was talking about, where now I got to call four of my reps or I BCC all of them or right. not because I don't know how to use that function. So I just CC all my reps <laughs> and like, Hey guys, here's what I'm quoting. Right. Just so you all know that you're on this, like, here's what we need. And like, I've seen a lot of that too, where you just, I mean, I did it, you know, from the engineering side, like usually it's three different emails and all right, guys, I need a quote for here's the package and fill it. Um, but to have that kind of transparency, especially on your side. Right. And then mm -hmm. the, the other thing too, and when you were talking about it, like Sunbelt, like I, I cause for the new guys, you know, like a market, they're like, yeah, well, Sunbelt, I just, I see them on the highway. So mm -hmm. that's where everyone must get there. I didn't know I could call a dealer to mm -hmm. rent stuff. Right. And so having like for new guys that maybe don't have that network or the connections and like mm -hmm. other people will rent you some, some equipment and stuff, you exactly. know, like that's just a, like, it's an eye-opening thing to be like, Oh, what do you mean? The, the Volvo dealer will rent me a 40 ton loader. Absolutely. Oh. And, and to, to not require a ton of effort on the customer's part. Right. And cause there are so many dealers. Like I've been in this industry for a long time. You know, we started heave and I, I'm shocked. I find the name of another independent dealer in Texas like every day. I'm like, oh my God, how many people are out there? It's unbelievable. Yeah. And and as a as a builder, as a contractor, to have options would have been great. Because frankly, no offense to the Sunglow or Sunbelt, whatever it is, guys, but you know, it's a pain in the ass when they roll up on your job site without equipment they're dropping off. 
right? You know why they're there. And it's like, I, I don't have time for this right now, man. And- no, it's, it, it, but this is how the industry's always operated. It used to drive me crazy. Like it, you, you're taught and you're told, like if you had a shitty month, go call on more customers. And another saying, when, when you're done for the day, make one more job site call. Uh, and then you you go you drive to the job site a guy is in a machine working it and you're like flagging him down like hey hey get out of your machine the guy stops the machine turns it off yeah hey do you need anything yes exactly how it is and then the customer will go if i need anything i will call you and so that's that's all we're seeking to solve like take away that uh <laughs> and let and let let salespeople like give them a funnel and then they can focus more of their time on actually value adding activities right take away the prospecting piece let them build a relationship like solve a problem get involved in service do things that matter yeah. so is it go ahead I'll talk is about it just that. you Alex, or do you have a staff yet, or how's that? No, work? no. So we've got we've got seven people. Um, okay. Yeah, and so I I was until recently I hired um, a really good sales guy who uh, I'll get to it. But before him, I hired him like two months ago. I was the only one with industry experience. Everyone is an engineer, is like a coder, product engineer, because uh, that's you were a tech company, and that's what we need. Like we don't need anybody else who knows a wheel loader. Uh, we just need people to build what you're, what you just see on that screen. Sure. Uh, and so that's been our, our team has been from day one, people who build technology. And uh, until I found, um, because I, we needed somebody who would actively call on salespeople and dealers. And um, I kind of wrestled with, you know, is it somebody who has a tech background, who's used to selling software, or is it someone who knows dealers? And I was able to find the perfect person who knows both. Uh, he was a former, uh, there's a, a product called Modern Communication that was a, uh, a text messaging software where dealers, it would be embedded in their, um, their business system. And anytime uh, a dealer changed the status of a work order, like, hey, uh, we, we ordered parts or we dispatched a technician. You would send a text message to the customer letting them know. Uh, Caterpillar bought that company. And I was able to hire uh, Zach from Caterpillar when he got absorbed into there. So he know, he had sold um, at, at software to equipment dealers and he knows software well. So he was like the perfect uh, combination of experience for us, what we're doing. Nice. Yeah, so we. Uh, this is a founding question. Did you bootstrap it, or do you <laughs> get investors for it? Uh, currently, still bootstrapping. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we like to hear, man. Uh, <laughs> we are we're gritty. It's uh, it's unbelievable the, the experience. Now we're for us to you know realize our vision, what we want to do. You know, we we have some ideas on further things that should impact customers. Uh, positively, we're going to need investment. So I've been having some of those conversations, but we had to, we had to get to the the right part with our product before it made a lot of sense. Like I, I initially uh, had talked to some investors early, and we just we didn't have that right fit yet. Like we, I wasn't confident that um, we had enough traction and that our product was right. And so like now is now is the time. Yeah, you gotta you gotta have that proof of concept, you know, before you go out and, and can confidently ask for a shit ton of money, right? Oh well, so to that point, like when people have asked me that question, the amount of people who are like, "Oh, it's got to be easy to raise money," and I'm like, "So have you ever have you ever sat in front of a group of like Wharton MBAs and asked them for five million dollars?" Like, I love how people are like casually, "Oh, it's easy to raise money now." It's like. Those are the well, people who, who still get money from mom and dad, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know what? Um, the In the early days when I would have investor meetings, it was incredibly helpful. Uh, it was painful sometimes, but they pointed out vulnerabilities in our business. And 
I think that's one of the things that um, you know, anybody who started a company is really important is like, there's a, there's a fine line between like your vision being stubborn and being malleable and like recognizing, you know what, that's something that we need to address and change. Uh, it's a very hard thing because you're so proud of what you're doing and you're so proud of what you've built. But uh, sometimes it's hard to hear that stuff. Oh yeah. I mean, the, the other side of it too, uh, from the conversations I've had, like in the early days of my stuff is most investors don't really understand construction or lead times or cycles, you know, like most of them are coming from a B2C side of things and not B2B. So they like, what do you mean it takes you six months or 18 months to close deals? Like, what, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, like they, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. The amount of people that I talk to from the investor side who have no knowledge of this industry. And you know, it's weird. Like, it's such an insular industry. Like, we've never, the industry itself has never like gone out and tried to recruit the young talent from other uh, areas. And I think that's where it kind of, it hurts is that, and, that, and why it is that way, right? There's just not a lot of in, insight into the construction industry as a whole. Yeah, I mean, sales cycles are a big thing when it comes down to it too, right? To not have a deal for three months, six months, you know, nine months close or you're on a project for two years, um, just the cycles are very different than like, you even take software, right? Where you can fix a, you can do a full cycle in a day. <laughs> sure. Well, and also like uh, just the economics of this business are crazy that when you learn it, it's like, all right, so congratulations. You won, you won a bit. You start a job. You're not going to get your first check for like 120 days. <laughs> congratulations. So now you've got to pay your people. You got to order materials. You got to do all this and you're not going to get paid. You know, it's like, and everything, uh, you know, has domino effects, right? So on the dealer side, it's just common where if I rent a piece of equipment to you, you're going to best case, you're going to pay me 60, 75 days from now. You know, it's just, that's the way it is. It's, that's construction cash flow at its finest. Right. I, I was right. just, I was just with a good friend this last weekend who, uh, who runs a, a cash flow funding company and they, they basically write loans, short-term loans to primarily subcontractors to offset that first hellish period of 69. Is that Scott? Yeah. Oh, nice. Yep. Scott yeah, Peter. I've gotten to know Scott a little bit. Great dude. He's a great dude. We, we've had him on before on the show also. Yeah, I had, a, I had him on a podcast and I remember someone had asked me, uh, I think it was Mark Simonson, like the, the rental journal podcast. He had asked me to come on. And he's like, and he's like, the first 20 minutes, you were talking with some guy about like Michael Jordan and LeBron James. He's like, what does that have to do with construction? <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, it was too good. Like we we're passionate about basketball. And so I left it in. I'm not going to cut that. <laughs> yeah, keep it, man. Keep every bit of it. So um, let's, let's switch gears a little bit in, in terms of how you market yourself. Are you, are you doing the trade show circuit or how, how is that going for you? I have. Uh, I don't love trade shows. We'll do like the dealer focused ones. There's one like it's called the Association of um, Equipment Dealers, AED. We've done that. Um, you know, it's those are really I, I feel like it's a, you have to be there. It's like you're conspicuous if you're absent, uh, but very little comes from it. Um, what, what I'm trying to do is do stuff like this, um, like podcasts, uh, write, uh, content. Like I contribute to, um, there's a, there's an older guy named Ron Slee, who's like an industry vet, uh, like 40 years in the business. Like he has his own website. He's been hired as a consultant, uh, by like all the major OEMs and a bunch of different dealers. Like they ask him like to look at their operation and suggest improvements. Like I, I write for his website. So I try to provide content like that to try to get our name out there. Uh, and it's just, it's just like guerrilla warfare. There's no, um, no billboards for heave. There's no, none of that stuff. It's just like literally 
uh, it sounds corny. And actually Scott is the one who shared this with me as well about his business. It's like, we just try to win one customer and one sales rep, like at a time, just win one. And then you look at, you look, uh, 30 days have gone by, you've added 50, you know, and it just, it's what you got to do when you're an early stage company. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. And, you know, content is huge, especially, especially video. If, I mean, if that's what you're, you're doing, that's a great way to, to reach people, a great way to break into these markets. Um, you know, we, we're seeing it on our side of the industry. Dylan sees it on him. I mean, it's, it's so huge right now. It's, it's video is king. And, and if you mm-hmm. can team up with a, a group that helps do that, it's, it's all the better, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not a very good marketer, so I got work to do there. But uh, trying to step out of my comfort zone a little bit. Yeah, so the easiest way to think about it is, and I think a lot of people really, marketing in general has been so diluted with people that don't know what the hell they're talking about and haven't sold shit in their lives um, is you have, you know, from like you being on, I'm going to say the trade uh, or the showroom floor, right. Or the <laughs> showroom outside you <laughs> with your right. two acres of equipment is uh, I mean, you just write that conversation. Like that is literal marketing and you mm-hmm. do it in a way that's fun, entertaining and you know, makes a sale at the end of the day. And I think a lot of people forget that at the end of the day, marketing needs to make a sale. Like you can have logos and pretty pictures all you want, but if it doesn't sell shit, you know, no one's keeping their jobs. So I think a lot of people forget that. (laughs) They do. I'll say one of the challenges in this industry in particular with marketing is that people are so tight-lipped about stuff. Like we've been very careful, like, and they used to kind of drive me crazy when I was at the dealership. Like some of our bigger customers were like, hey, Volvo, you you bought 30, 40 ton trucks. That's a huge deal. Volvo would love to run a story on you. No. Okay. <laughs> uh, and so, and it's just kind of the way it's always been. So it makes it a little challenging because we would love to tell the world like, hey, this guy sold 10 machines because of Heath, but we had, you know, it's just, we haven't done it. And because you know, we want our use our users to be the one who are like, hey, I, I, I'm okay with you doing that. And people are just kind of used to operating silently. This business well, makes it hard. So think of all like the because this is all blue collar guys, right? Mm-hmm. Most everybody's never used to getting a handout. You know, they've had to earn everything that they've ever done. Mm-hmm. So when someone is like willing to to give them press publicity, you know, they associate that with the sleazy whatever when that's not, not at all the right, case. Right. So it's overcoming those uh, perceived perceptions of like, it's okay to let somebody come in and promote you. It's okay right. to let somebody tell the story that you wanna tell. It's okay to like brag a little bit about the project that you do. You do mm-hmm. it when you got six beers in you at the bar, but like, you know, we can do this sober too, guys. Like, it's okay. Right. And these guys have interesting stories too. Totally. They're, Absolutely. They, I mean, blue collar guys are the best storytellers <laughs> of anybody. And you just well, got to let them do it and tell them that it's okay, man. Like it's yeah. okay. We want you to talk about this stuff. And they also have like, they like have made like insane risks too, right. To start their business or they, you know, there's, there's some great stories. And I've heard a lot of those over six beers and you just, they're, you know, you want, you'd love for them to tell well, usually, so with equipment, it's the quitting stories that are also really good. Um, so I, I went to high school in Southern Oregon, so big logging area. Mm-hmm. And uh, during the summers, I did surveying, which uh, meant I chopped a line through the forest. Uh, <laughs> we cut down a ton of trees and machete and ferns and all that stuff. That was the type of surveying I did, not the, you know, nice clear lot right. <laughs> stuff. And one of the guys, uh, the surveyors, we were, I, we were in the middle of the woods somewhere, and he was talking about one of the jobs he was on. Some guy got real pissed on just whatever, and he was a dozer operator. Mm-hmm. And what he he strapped a forty foot log to the end of the dozer, 
and drove the dozer off a cliff, but the log held it there. So then the dozer <laughs> just swung, you know, oh like three feet off the ground. But I mean, he had the balls enough to drive it off a cliff and knew that he wasn't going to fully crash it. Um, so like, How does he know that? well because i mean this guy was like a 20 year vet and he was just so pissed that you know you end up doing stuff like this or the other crazy things that people do with equipment but like i mean i'll never forget that story because it's just like so insane of a guy you know driving a d6 off a cliff and (laughs) a million dollar (laughs) (laughs) and it just swung there because again he tied all this stuff up he to a 40 foot tree and it was long enough and heavy enough that it it kept it but yeah like you have i mean hopefully that dozer was rented <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. call up your equipment rep so uh we gotta, you're gonna need to bring an excavator to right, get right. your dozer down <laughs> or even better like on demo <laughs> yeah. yeah i never heard how they got it down but <laughs> yeah that's awesome <laughs> So Alex, one of the, one of the questions we like to ask everybody that comes on and I'm, I'm interested in your perspective, because like you mentioned earlier, you're you're the first guy from the equipment side of the spectrum that, that we've talked to, uh, certainly Mm -hmm. since I've been on board. Um, What do you see as the biggest problem in, in our industry, in the construction industry as a whole from, from your viewpoint? And then secondarily, what the hell can we do to fix it? Um. I think the biggest problem is an awareness problem in it kind of ties back to what we were saying about uh, these guys not telling stories, you know, like it's such a, in my opinion, it's such a taken for granted. Like what's the dream of every American owning a home, you know, and you see these big, you know, housing developments that come up and, but nobody knows the names of the companies that, like made it possible, right? And I do think that today there's more awareness or there's starting to be more awareness about how college isn't right for everyone. And to me, it's, so it's like, to, for me, it's like awareness and education, you know, like uh, education around like, you know, college has X amount of debt, which is crazy. What are people getting for it? And it, you can go this path, you can, it doesn't mean you're a laborer. You can, there's plenty of these guys, like back to my earlier, you know, when I first started in the industry, like I'd meet these guys who are blue collar who own a company and they don't have a college degree, you know, so you don't have to, you're not sentenced to this life of $15 an hour or whatever. Like you can, you, there's other paths. So I think it's, I think it's a combination of both uh, where it's, awareness you know the pride in what these companies do and how it benefits x amount of people and then hey this is a this is a real uh, opportunity uh, for employment and prosperity i i couldn't agree more man i mean that's that's the blue collar badass right that's you know blue collar doesn't mean low dollar you can you can have a massive company if you want it uh, you just got to be willing to do what what you're doing, what Dylan does, what I've done. You know, you got to be willing to grind it out, take some risks. And, you know, I, it, it all goes back to content and to awareness, to video. I think that's part of how we saw that, right, is because sure. we're still fighting against that age old mentality that if you don't go to college, you're you're going to wind up homeless and, you know, with no friends and you know you're going to be a waste the rest of your life. But it's it's through conversations like this, but then bigger, broader, you know, spectrum conversations and content being pushed out constantly. And we got to just keep pounding that in and pounding it in because I can see it starting to kind of turn a little bit, you know, I can, you start seeing more and more people on LinkedIn, you know, of all places now screaming about the trades and, you know, that's, that's pretty cool to see. I'm I'm sure that's not the only way to solve it, but it's, it definitely seems to be helping. The other thing that, you know, I've never read more in my life uh, than since I started this company that's helpful for me. And I think it's helpful is that uh, you just reading and researching more about companies and their origins. And because I think we have a uh, a tendency, I think it's natural to look at uh, X company and think it was easy for them. 
And so I think when we, we promote more and tell more of the stories of origins, uh, so people understand that like, yeah, such and such didn't have it easy. Because I think that's what uh, inhibits a lot of people is uh, it, it's getting started. It's like just taking that leap, knowing that, hey, it, it wasn't easy for anybody, right? right. And, uh, and so it's just starting because everything is unknown. It was unknown for Google. It was unknown for Bezos. It was unknown for all of those guys. And just, but taking those steps and, and learning about those companies and what they did and how they grinded the first few years. And, you know, I think it's helpful. It was helpful for me, you know. For sure. Yeah, two things I really want to hit on. One is, it's such a good point to note that construction isn't a $15 a year or, you know, an hour deal forever. Right. And you might start there, but like, that's, and I mean, I didn't even start there. Like I started as an engineer, right? Like I came into the industry differently than, than some, but you know, even if you came in as a laborer, you can easily move your way up with some hard work and discipline and some intelligence, you know, and thought behind what you do. Um, and that's a, I think that's a perception that isn't true that we just need to keep overcoming, you know, that it's, it's not low paying, it's not, you know, all dirt and grime. Um, you know, there's some really good parts and pieces to the, the industry that, you know, can be glamorous, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure for all of us, there's days that we want to get out of the office and into sure. the field rather than, uh, you know, the other way around for, for a lot of guys. So that, um, and then the other piece is, in origin stories. So two of the best ones that um, I would highly recommend anybody uh, go and read the, the actual books is one is Founder, which is the McDonald's uh, origin story in Ray Kroc. Mm -hmm. um, great book on uh, him. And he did it in his, heck, I think Ray Kroc was 50 in his 40s, 50s when he founded McDonald's. So not a, not a young guy by any means. Sure uh and doing that and then also the sam walton and um i'm pretty sure it's um oh what is his book called something america is sam walton's bio that he wrote uh basically on his deathbed so uh founder of walmart nice. that was a very very good book uh in the whole building of walmart and like just how obsessed Sam Walton was with retail. Like he'd be uh, on vacation and looking at like the fixtures or shelving units in like France, you know, mm -hmm. he'd be, his wife would yell at him to get up off the floor because he was looking at how they like got put together and how shelving was set up and lighting and all this stuff. But I mean, that's an obsessed guy that cared an awful lot about, you know, retail and what he was doing. And then obviously they, they did a lot of things with supply chain and Walmart innovated Definitely. All ahead of their time. For and what's really cool about it's really, it's every company uh, is that they, they start on that tiny, they, they have to get their first customer and they're, they're focused. Like Walmart didn't, you know, incorporate and then have 40 Walmart stores. They had, I'm sure probably like some, and I don't, I, I will take you up on that and read those books, but they probably had one that was like 400 square feet. <laughs> to start right or yeah. something stupid because you think of them at the the global conglomerate, uh, conglomerate now but that's another unique thing is that everybody has to start small well, you might have this grand vision but everybody starts the same place yeah uh sam Walton partnered with the managers for his first and took investors basically in each individual store for the first 10 i think and then uh and he drove to every store every day and mm -hmm. then um it got to where his radius was too wide to where he couldn't drive every day to every store. So he learned to fly. Um, or I think he was a world war two pilot, something like that. Like he knew how to fly. So he got a plane and then he flew to every store every day. And then like, you'd see uh, Walton in his later years, um, like in his Gulf streams and stuff. And he's got his, but Walt, so Walton was also the guy that would do like, you know, rafting trips for, um, basically shareholder meetings and all this kind of stuff, but he would take his hunting dogs on his Gulf streams right. <laughs> when he was an older dude and he'd go down to like, and that's why they, the, they lived in Benville was because his wife didn't want to live in a big city, uh, which Benville now is a big city because of Walmart, right. but uh, they would, yeah, he would fly down to Alabama with his hunting dogs um, and 
go on uh, out of like the Gulf Stream, you know. So sixty-five million dollar jet, take his four dogs and go nice. bird hunting. <laughs> nice, pretty pretty cool stuff. Um, Alex, any final uh, words to wrap this up before Matt and I close this out? I I enjoyed it. I I uh, I've listened to a few of your guys' pods. I I loved um, the one on mediocrity. I loved. That's not something that's talked about a lot. I despise mediocrity. <laughs> so I, I was, that resonated with me. And then the, there's another one um, that was like really inspirational. The iron, the iron worker guy, iron uh, who became a lawyer was really, yeah. really cool. That was a good one. I was like ready to lace them up and go work out after that one. So I, I, uh, I've checked out a few of your pods. I really like. Well, thank you, man. And we certainly uh, appreciate you coming on. It was a, a good conversation and, and one we'll have to touch base in, in a year or so and see how you're doing with, with Heave and how everything's going. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. It's, uh, I'm, I'm glad uh, I was able to come on and chop it up with you guys and hopefully we'll continue to build this thing and, and hopefully you'll, have, you'll be able to order a piece of equipment on Heave uh, in the future and have a much better experience than uh, that little Kubota machine you were trying to get before. That's, that's where I'm going next time. I love I'm getting it. ready to trade it in for a bigger one, so it might be sooner than later. I love it. Perfect. Alex, where can people find you other than, other than Heave.co? Uh, LinkedIn is a great resource uh, for us. Um, so I'm... I'm always on, actually, I post like almost every uh, customer request on LinkedIn to try to, because uh, salesmen are on there. And it's also, it, it provides like a layer of a credibility too, to what we're doing. Because like when I'll, when I talk to a salesman, sometimes like I'll, they'll get a, a link from our, our system and they're like, eh, I don't want to click on this. And then they go to LinkedIn and they're like, oh, they see our company page. It's a real company. They get a, a better feel for what we're doing. So we're, we're all over LinkedIn and uh, just making the rounds. I write for uh, Ron Slee's website called Learning Without Scars. So I got I owe him an article here shortly. So <laughs> that's awesome. Matt, any final words before I close this out? I'm good, man. Alex, I, I enjoyed it again. And thanks, man. We'll touch base. Appreciate it very much. Thank you, guys. Alex, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, the show we really appreciate you coming on being our first uh, equipment guy and to hear that side of the the business and you know coming from uh basically doing starting in sales moving your way up and uh then finding a problem to solve in the industry that uh, i think is a really cool and neat way to to solve it gives a lot of transparency and uh, allows people to meet their equipment needs and probably in a lot easier and timely manner than they've ever had in the past. So appreciate you for uh, having the, the courage to step out, start your own uh, deal. I, Matt and I both know how it, how it goes. It's not, not the easiest path to travel, nope. but uh, appreciate you doing it, uh, coming on the show, chopping it up and uh, for, you know, listening to some other episodes too, man, we, we appreciate you and thank you for everything that you're doing, you know, creating jobs, uh, making it easy for people to get equipment. So, and so we can build some, some cool things, man. So appreciate you coming on and Thanks uh, again. guys, that is going to be this episode of the construction corner podcast until next time. I'll send you some heave shirts. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I see them on the rack back there. 